On this week's Inside Marketing, I will be joined by the one and only Paul Feldwick. Paul is a great contributor to our industry and he's written a lot of books on the subject of advertising. His work is fantastic, so I'm really going to enjoy this one. And we'll, we'll concentrate predominantly on the anatomy of humbug and why does a peddler sing. It's going to be a, a really, really interesting episode and I'm really looking forward to it. So that's Paul Feldwick only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. So hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, I am delighted to be joined by Paul Feldwick. Firstly, before we start, Paul, um, thank you so much for joining me. And how are you doing at the moment? It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm very well now, thanks. Very good. So I'm going to get through as much as I can. Um, I love the books. I was saying this to you off mic. I love the books. They're incredible. I recommend anybody who's listening who hasn't read them, first and foremost, read them. They're, they're just great and they're wonderfully insightful. They're funny, um, which isn't always true of marketing books um, or advertising books. So they are refreshingly honest and it's just a lovely style of writing. So I thoroughly enjoyed them. And anyone who's listening, you haven't read them, read them. I urge you to read them. Um, they're fantastic. So we will crack on because I want to get through a lot. Um, the books and, and the, both of the books and talk about different kind of models of advertising, if you will, that have that have come in and out of fashion through through the through the years and and um, and we 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 desperately not everybody but the industry wants to be thought of as a science, I think. Um, and we now feel like we're more enlightened today, maybe than than we ever have been. That you know, it's different somehow. The rules don't, the old rules don't apply. And, um, but we've been here before because it tends to go in cycles. And, and I think every generation thinks that things that have gone before aren't applicable to them. What's your view on, on advertising today and whether old models still apply to kick us off? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very, always very skeptical of the idea that the rules have changed and uh, certainly that there's nothing to learn from the past. Um, you know, at most, certain things become more figural, more foregrounded, perhaps. And and undeniably, the media landscape changes. And that's what we've seen, I think, much more in the last 20 years than maybe in the previous 50 years. We've seen that shift in the media landscape. And that's blindsided quite a lot of people. But, you know, if you take a long enough view, and if you go back not just 20 years, not just 50 years, you go back 150 years or more, then I think you can start to see things that maybe don't really change over time, however much the media landscape changes. I mean, you know, people nowadays may talk about how are we going to cope with, say, a post-TV world. Mm. Um but if you, you you only have to go back about as long as my lifetime to realize that actually there was a pre-TV world and that lasted for a very long time and mm -hmm. people were able to do very powerful, successful advertising and publicity throughout that period. So maybe there are some clues there. And I mean, you mentioned mental models or models of advertising, which I think is, is very much what the anatomy of humbug is about. And to some extent, of course, informs why does the peddler sing as well. And I, I suppose I could just try and give a, at the risk of oversimplifying, because of course, all grand narratives really oversimplify. Um, if you go back to say the middle of the 19th century, um, I think you can see how different models sort of come and go, but you can then decide, well, 
which of those is relevant? What's relevant about them? If you go back to when brands really start to develop, and I'm putting that around the 1870s, 1880s, with mm. brands like Coca-Cola and uh, Quaker Oats, uh, you know, are beginning to become very big and very successful and create really a whole new way of mass marketing. Um, in a way, they kind of go straight to the point and they, they understand what they're doing, which is you actually become successful by becoming famous. Mm. So, you know, what do these people do? They spend fortunes, I mean, unbelievable fortunes by modern standards on, on publicity. Mm. And they spend on all kinds of publicity that are available to them. They don't have radio. They don't have TV. They don't, of course, have the Internet. Um, they have newspapers. They have posters. They, have, they also have loads of things you can give away. They have merchandise. They, they, they have um, stunts. They have mm. events. They have theater. They have all sorts of things that they can do. And they do do all of them. And they throw money at them. And... This notion that, you know, the brand succeeds because it makes itself famous is really taking a lot of its cues from the things that somebody like P.T. Barnum was doing mm. just prior to that, using those new mass media, using those new means of communication to create uh, people uh, or events that are famous on, on a global scale. And it's simply then applying that to the world of everyday commerce mm. and turning that into how do you build a brand. So the, the, the key words there are this model is a model about what I've called showmanship or show mm. business. Even. It's like, you know, we're putting on a show and we're getting everybody talking about us and the brand becomes top of mind. And it's the one that everybody wants to know about. And therefore, it's the one that everybody buys. And that puts it in an incredibly strong position. Now, about 1900, advertising agencies start coming along and they immediately start getting ideas a bit above their station. They don't want to be associated with this kind of vulgarity, this mm. ballyhoo. They want to be a profession. They want to be like lawyers. They want to be like doctors. So, you know, the discourse from about 1900 onwards, and also it's to do with the growth, I suppose, of print advertising and the, the relative importance of print is fits into this as well. But gradually, the, the discourse becomes taken over by it's about writing copy that sells. It's about being giving people reasons why you should buy this brand rather than that brand. Now, it's not wrong. It's part of what advertising does, but it takes the focus away from that earlier show business ballyhoo sort of model. And it focuses them much more on, you know, we are giving people rational reasons to believe. And that model very much comes to dominate the way that we talk about advertising in many ways, right through the whole of the 20th century, mm. despite everything else that changes, those are the words via people like Claude Hopkins and David Ogilvy. Those are the kind of language. It's all about the proposition. It's all mm. about the reason why. It's all about writing the copy that sells, et cetera, et cetera. And as I say, that's part of what advertising does. In its own context, it's really effective. But what they're also doing, which I think is the mistake that the advertising agencies increasingly make, is they kind of disown that, um, that entertainment aspect of it, that aspect which is much simpler in a way. It's just becoming famous. Um, and I think that's, if you like, that's the central thrust of what... Now, if you come right up to the present moment and you look at what's been happening in the 21st century, well, fame has become a huge thing in the 21st century. Yeah. 
But who is becoming famous? It's, it's only, in some cases, it's brands, but mostly it's not the brands. And it's not what the advertising agencies are doing. They're not creating fame. The people who are creating fame are, you know, they're, they're the rock stars. They're the film stars. They're the influencers and the bloggers. They're, you know, mm. the, the Logan Pauls of this world who are, you know, um, making themselves famous by doing outrageous things. Mm. They are, to some extent, the Elon Musks and the Donald Trumps of the world. So fame is a vast, massive thing in the 21st century. And, and that's not that different in some ways from how it was, you know, in the mid-19th century. Mm. But that's not what the discourse of advertising has become about. Mm. That's gone somewhere completely different. Mm. And 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 we get it because, yeah, because it's fascinating that there's a lot, there's quite, there's an awful lot to talk about and say we could go on for, for hours. And what, and what I'll cover this just quickly because in the in the book there's lots of different and we look we live in the world you like to think it's A or B and rarely you know Mark Ritson talks of bothism so it's neither A nor B it's usually a blend of both um, research and going out and asking because it was focus groups and that kind of thing it can be a lot of the time it's done as an insurance against failures you know well we researched it and um, you know it, it did really well so. But there's been a lot of people who who were like a high profile rejectors of research. Um, Bill Birnbach is one of them, and he said he 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 thought you should trust your gut, your gut judgment more often. Where do you stand on research? Do you think we rely too heavily on it, um, or do you think it has its place? I think it certainly has its place. Um, I mean, market research is it's incredibly difficult to do well. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's very easy. I mean, people consist consistently they make mistakes. They either they either measure or attempt to measure quite the wrong thing in the first place, or even if they are attempting to measure the right thing, they're not measuring it very well. Um, so that there's all way many many ways in which it can go wrong. Um, so that that has to be admitted. But um, you know, and, and also, I mean, the use of research. To structure advertising, which is kind of what Bernbach was was attacking when he wrote that famous letter way back in 1949 or whenever it was now, you know, and he was saying, you know, they've got all the rules, but actually it's about more than just rules. He's making a valid point. Um, there are a lot of people in advertising who do want to reduce advertising to a set of rules. They say, this is the kind of headline that people will read, mm. uh, you know, ads should be this long or that short, et cetera, et cetera. People are still doing that. And I don't think that is, on the whole, the best way to create advertising. So um, Bernbach is having a go at that, and I think he's right to do so. Because, again, if you kind of put advertising into that context of it's a branch of show business... <laughs> Mm. like I was suggesting it was. It's not a great way to produce successful shows either, you know, mm. successful or, or rec pop records or whatever. You know, yes, you can create them to a formula, but on the whole, the formula is, is, is better driven by people's judgment rather than purely by research. Having said all that, I think Bernbach's position about research in the long run, proved to be incredibly damaging to the advertising business. Because however bad research is and however dangerous it is, however, however easily you can make mistakes using research, if you take a stance that says, we will not use any research at all, mm. 
then I think that is even more dangerous. Because what that actually leads you to is you're cutting yourself off from the real world. You're cutting yourself off from the audience that you're trying to talk to. It, it, it leads you to a position very quickly of saying, we're not interested in what those people think. Mm. We're, we're, we're going to trust our judgment. We're going to please ourselves. And we are not going to pay any attention to the response that we're getting from that audience. And that, I think, is the other big thing that's gone wrong with advertising post-Burnbach. And that's like 70 years post-Burnbach, to be honest. But that myth that, you know, research is always bad, therefore we don't want anything to do with research. Um, up to a point, it's liberating, but it very quickly actually becomes a huge trap and it becomes a huge limitation because it means you actually are rejecting your audience. You have contempt for the audience. Now, in show business, you can't do that. The mm. whole point of show business is you've got to have an audience. That's how you make your money. Um, you know, if the show flops, it flops. Sure, you know, the research might have said it was it was it was great and then it flops or vice versa. The research can get it wrong, but you cannot ignore the audience. In advertising, it's actually surprisingly easy to ignore the audience if you don't have any kind of research. Now, I, I say this with conviction from my heart because my career, the, the formative years of my career were in an agency in the 1970s and the 1980s which consistently used research rigorously on every campaign that we produced, mm. qualitative research principally, um, in order to show our campaigns to real people and just listen to how they responded to them. Now, you can get that wrong. You can misinterpret what people are saying. If you take it too literally, if you're looking for the wrong things, mm. you can make mistakes. But... It actually, if you if you if you do it intelligently enough, and and if you're looking for more or less the right things, then actually it's incredibly valuable because you instantly know do they understand it? Mm. Very often, very often this clever commercial fails at the first hurdle because people simply haven't a clue what's going on. Mm. At that point, you've lost them completely. Or it's meant to be funny. But actually, they don't think it's funny. Mm. Um, comedians, entertainers, they all know, you know, well, let's try this joke out. If nobody laughs, I'm not going to do it again the, the following night. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so you don't persevere with that route. But very often you can then say, OK, suppose we did this to it. If we gave it a bit of a tweak or we changed this around, then you can turn something unpromising into something incredibly successful. And we had many examples of doing that too. So I think sensitively used, the response of your real-life audience is absolutely essential in keeping advertising uh, effective and keeping it on the straight and narrow. And it is by no means the enemy of creativity if it's used like that. Mm. It, it actually makes is what makes creativity possible because, you know, that interplay with the audience is what creative artists all absolutely need. Mm. Um, and, and that's how we used to do it, uh, you know, back in the day at BMP. Mm. So um, I have to say, I found very few agencies that, that, that have done anything like that. And I'm probably, I cannot think of any that are doing that sort of thing mm. now. So, you know, uh, but that proves it's possible. Mm, yeah. uh, and as I say, if, if you just reject research and say research is the work of the devil, which is where an awful lot of creative people still have their heads, 
um, then I think that's that's fatal because after a while you're just in an echo chamber talking to your mates and talking to yourself and nobody's listening. Yeah, and it is a it's a problem that that we that was kind of gone on in the industry in terms of and particularly driven by the awards culture, which we, which we'll touch on. Um, again, another debate which is advertising art or science, right? And we and we we both have advantages and both have some truths and there's there's bits of 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 both in in what advertising is um but you describe it as being and this has gone back to your first book it's best described as humbug so for anyone who hasn't read the book what do you mean by that <laughs> <laughs> what what does that mean oh well yes or, or alternatively again i mean I've, I've i've said is it art or science well maybe it's a branch of show business is another way of putting it but i discovered that word humbug and i liked it um as I was writing that book, because I, I, I came across the, the, the life and history of P.T. Barnum. And humbug was a word that Barnum used. Now, historically, the word humbug um, in the 19th century was, a, was pretty much a term of abuse. You know, it meant you were a fraud, hmm. you were a cheat, you were talking nonsense. Probably it was like, it was like a kind of the modern equivalent word is probably something like bullshit. Right. You know, um, and you remember in uh, Dickens in A Christmas Carol, where Scrooge Scrooge is rubbishing Christmas, and he says Christmas bar humbug. Mm. You know, today he said Christmas bullshit. Mm. You know, so that's what it meant. And people, because Barnum was so successful, and because he was so outrageous, and because he was so sort of, you know, popularist, if you like. Um, a lot of people pointed the finger at Barnum and wanted to take him down. And one of the terms of abuse they used was, you are a humbug, meaning, you know, you're a fraud. And indeed, mm. some of the things Barnum did in his early career, they were kind of, you know, pulling the public's mm. leg. Yeah. You know, they'd be like the Fiji mermaid. He'd say, here's a real mermaid that was captured in the South Seas. And it, it was obviously a fake, you know, it was a fish and a monkey stuck together. <laughs> But that was part of the fun. People would come and argue about it, say, is it real? No, it's not. You know, you yeah. can imagine how this would play out in social media nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he just didn't have that medium, but he was able to do it anyway and get, get the crowd arguing about it. So people would point at him and they'd say, you know, you are a humbug. Um, in fact, this, this is even in the movie, the, 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 the Greatest Showman movie, which is very unhistorical, but even this bit gets into the movie in a recognisable form. And Barnum, in a classic way, sort of took that insult and he owned it and he was sort of proud about it. And he said, I am not just a humbug. He said, I am the prince of humbugs. Right. Um, he said, you know, I'm going to do humbug. I do it better than anybody else. And he then wrote quite a lot about what he thought humbug meant. And he says, you know, people say humbug is just deceit. Well, humbug is not deceit. Humbug, you know, it has a different kind of relationship with the truth. Um, it's 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 neither true nor not true. Um, it's simply whatever it takes to get the public interested, to mm. get them talking, um, to attract their attention, and to get them involved. And then, if they actually get their money's worth, if they get something out of it, you know, they enjoy the show, they enjoy mm -hmm. arguing about the Fiji mermaid and whether it's real or not. If they get their their value out of it, then nobody's been cheated, mm. and that that was his defence of humbug. So I use that word 
in the, in the anatomy of humbug. And, and again, you know, some people said, oh, I wouldn't use that word if I were you. People will misunderstand what you're on about. But I wanted it to be a little bit controversial because it seemed to me that one of the things that had gone wrong with advertising was over a very long period of time, it's come to just take itself much too seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's turned its back on that whole world of, you know, showmanship, showmanship. and medicine shows and uh, and freak shows and Fiji mermaids and, mm. and, and all the rest of it um, to say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're, we're scientific and we're, we're serious salesmen and we just give the facts and all this stuff. Um, and, and I just wanted to sort of put it back into that context of saying what we do is showmanship, what we do is humbug. Um, yeah, I, I, example I give at the very end of the book, which was a, an ad that everyone was talking about at the time, this is in 2015, but I think it's still remembered in the ad business, was the, the one with, um, you know, the, the, the guy standing between the two Volvo uh, trucks. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah, that's right. That's the guy's name. And I said, well, there's lots of ways you could explain why that's a good commercial. Um, but actually, you just look at it. Mm. see what's in front of you this is a stunt of pure barnum type Mm. you know it's a circus stunt it's incredible is it i mean part of the reaction to that is is this real is it not real Mm. and that's one of the the things that engages people in it and argue about it it's the circus strongman doing something Mm. you know completely incredible and therefore i said well whatever it is it's actually got a lot of humbug about Mm. it and that's makes it a good ad and you know so much of the advertising business that has been successful it can be described as humbug so so yeah. that was why i wanted that word back into back into use and and you're right i, mean, I remember oh god i don't know when it was years and years ago there was a nike did a, it it was when nike were kind of they, they tested they had some kind of well-produced TV ads on, but they had a video of Ronaldinho in training, right? And he, and he puts on the... And I look back in there, I go, why, how could I think this was real? It was so, I was so stupid. But it was very convincing at the time. It was just kind of shot on the phone or something and he puts on boots and he's doing keepy-uppies and he hits, he, he does a volley, the ball hits the bar, it comes back to him and he does this about seven or eight mm-hmm. times in a row. And I remember having a huge debate with people in the office. There's no way that's real. And go, no, it is, it is. Turns out they released... The, the kind of edit of it where they had it on a, it was all manufactured but that's the same type of thing it's kind of um, yeah, showmanship yeah. And, and but yeah and it generated lots of lots of conversation but and a, a couple of different things like we do we do try and um, kind of try and make the industry look very very professional and now there's a certain amount of look, and this runs through um, through peddlers. There's a certain amount of look in anything that that becomes successful, in good fortune, serendipity, call it whatever you want. Um, for, because for things to become popular and famous, uh, with brands you can spend, but like to really catapult them into popular culture, there's a little bit of look involved there. Whether it's music. Um, now, when I read, I remember the the Roanakers and Barclay Card campaign, and when I read the opening chapter or two of of Peddler. And you and you were saying how that ad applies to the different models and and the um, of advertising, and I was blown away. I was going, "This is incredible!" Like because that that amount of and 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 then you kind of pulled the rug to a degree and said, "Well, that's not how that happened," and you told the truth about that. So, what? Yeah. What, talk to me about. Uh, yeah. What? Like, just explain that just just briefly about Atkinson and and what happened there. Because another thing is, that I I wonder how useful the pitch process is if 
what wins a pitch never sees the light of day and it's totally different so but it was very convincing the way you wrote that the way you could deconstruct that ad and but that was very different to your award entry what sorry what happened was very different to the IPA papers you or the FE papers you would have written yeah yeah so talk to me about no, that for a I second mean, as I say I mean ad agencies um they they they, they they're kind of trained to sort of make up stories about how we got to where we got to. Mm. And they always want it to appear to be, we planned this logically right from the start and we did all this strategic thinking and therefore we did this and therefore we did this and therefore we did this. And at the end out popped this really successful campaign. Um, And I think they, they, they do that because they're convinced that that's what their clients want to hear. And maybe to a large extent, it is what the clients want to hear because Everybody wants that sense of control and certainty in what they're doing. Um, and to, to, to say that it's uh, there is not that degree of control and not that degree of certainty it is regarded as a sort of admission that, you know, this is actually just chaos and it's just flinging stuff against a wall mm. and getting lucky. Um, and indeed, there is an element of luck. But I think... It's, it's neither one extreme nor the other. I mean, any, any pursuit, any creative pursuit, shall we say, in the sense of you're trying to create something, not only something that wasn't there before, but you're trying to create something that you cannot even quite imagine what it is until you've done it. Mm. And that applies to doing ads. It also applies to doing you know, movies or records or computer games or a lot of other stuff. And it also applies to maybe scientific discovery as well to a large extent, where there there is similarly a myth Mm -hmm. that scientific discovery is is arrived at through a series of logical steps, whereas, Mm. again, it's much more complex than that. Um, But rather rather than just say, I mean, and, you know, to just say, well, we kind of faffed around a bit and then we got lucky <laughs> yeah. uh, has yeah. a slight element of truth in it, but it's not really being fair to what you did. Um, word that I prefer to use for, for the kind of process I'm talking about is that it's emergent. Things emerge. And that that is actually a concept that is quite respectable in a lot of, you know, science or mm-hmm. um sociological thinking or whatever things emerge does not mean they just happened but it means they happen in a much more complex way they happen as a a whole long series of um actions and then things happening as a result Mm. of those actions and then your responses to those actions and so there's a continual learning going on and there's a continual discovery going on and, you know, that may be informed by we have a general idea of where we're trying to get to. Indeed, it generally does. But it also has to include that, that you may get halfway and think, actually, maybe where we're trying to get to isn't the right place to get mm, to after yeah. all. Maybe we should be yeah. going somewhere else. And you need to be able to, you know, that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of learning, which is also, I mean, again, that there are sort of technical expressions for this where some people have talked about double loop learning or triple loop learning which is not just changing how you do something but changing what it is you're trying to do in the first place Mm. all those i think are entirely valid and necessary and to be honest 
quite inescapable if you are trying to solve a complex problem or if you are trying to create something that, that, that wasn't there in the first place. And as I say, you don't even quite know what it looks like until mm. you've actually done it. Um, so the Barclaycard story seen through that lens, I would say it, it is emergent. Yes, there are some quite big sort of reverses, if you like. Um, all the stuff we presented at the pitch, I think, was was kind of going nowhere. Right. And one of the lessons is we stuck with it probably a great deal longer than we should have done, um, mm. as people do, because, you know, you have this, you're all so committed to it. This is what we won the pitch with. It yeah. must be right. Yeah. The, the, the client are going, this is the stuff we awarded the agency for, so it must be right. Nobody wants to hear, um, maybe we should just chuck this and start again because mm. it's not working. Um, that actually could have happened like six months earlier than it did. Yeah. But in fact, by the time it does happen, we then have a deadline. We're really up against it. And that actually is helpful in a way because it concentrated the mind. Mm. And, yeah, there's nothing um, like a deadline. You know, yeah, absolutely. There's no time to fire the agency and say, well, that was a complete waste of time. Let's start again because yeah. we haven't got another six months. So we just kind of have <clears throat> enough to go on to think, this might just work and we're damn well going to have to make it work. And in fact, it did work absolutely brilliantly. Yeah. But it, the other thing that happened in that process that I point out in the book is that for the first six months or so, we were still really stuck in this, this model of the advertising process, which was about, it's all about rational persuasion. Mm. You know, how are we going to get the product points across? You know, how are we going to communicate this to, to, to the public? Uh, and that's all we're thinking about. We're thinking in sort of marketing terms. As soon as we've got Rowan Atkinson and John Lloyd involved, without anybody quite ever consciously saying this, the whole nature of what we're trying to do has, has shifted radically because suddenly actually we're producing a show, mm. we're producing a comedy, we're, we're producing something that has, it's it's like a piece of entertainment, it is a piece of entertainment. Mm. Um, and that's what having professional entertainers, if you like, um, from outside that narrow world of advertising is hugely powerful at that point because they are going okay, we, we have to do it like this because this is what's going to be entertaining. This is what's going to be funny. Mm. Now, they're very professional about it. They know it's an advert. They're, they're not being self-indulgent and going, oh, we don't want to talk about the product. Mm. They're, 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 they actually don't have any hang-ups about that at all. It's not a problem. Um, they know it's an advert. They know who's paying for it. And if you look at those ads, one of the really clever things about it is the number of brand name mentions that, that they get into those mm. scripts. I mean, it's all Rowan Atkinson saying, Barclay card, Bob, Barclay mm, card, yeah. put it away. I don't want a Barclay card. <laughs> and uh, it just sounds perfectly natural. Mm. Um, but those ads are great. And I think the best ones are great. A few of them are a bit duds, to be honest, but most of them are great. They're great because we've got someone of the caliber of Rowan Atkinson and John Lloyd very involved in the creation alongside with our own creative people. Mm. Um, but also, they're, they're only great because having done that, we and the client 
are al- allowing them to kind of have a, a high degree of control over what they do. Mm. And since then, I've seen many, many examples of agencies and clients who have hired brilliant entertainers, you know, top-ranked people. Mm. And then you see the ads and you think, how could those great people have produced something that yeah. was so dull? Mm. And, and I think the answer is usually obvious. It's because everything has been controlled out of them. It's like, no, you can't do that. You can't mm. do that. It has to be written a certain way. You have to say this line a certain way. We have to stick with the script exactly as yeah. it's written. Um, I mean, there was an example. I remember, you know, a few years ago, I think Tesco, I think it was, who hired Ruth Jones and I, I forget who else, but I think, mm. you know, some of the sort of Gavin and Stacey people. Yeah to do, do a series of ads. And you think, well, Gammon and Stacey is, is utterly brilliant. Mm. Um, why not get, get that team and just turn them loose on doing some ads for Tesco? What could possibly go wrong? And yet the thing is dead in the water. Mm. And, and I'm sure it, it can only be because, you know, there are so many people sticking their oar in and saying, don't do it like that, do it like this, or you have to bet this point in, or you have to talk about the price, you have to talk about that. And, and, and there's no there's no space, there's no freedom for it to fly. Yeah. And, and this is where I think, you come back to your question from a long time ago about is it art or science? Mm-hmm. This is where the art comes into it. Mm. And I don't like the word art because it suggests too often high, high art. Bro, yeah. it, it, people get on their high horses and kind of go, oh, I'm an artist, you know, and I'm, I'm winning the Turner Prize and I'm not mm. very interested in what but artistry if you like or the aesthetics of creating a piece of entertainment and it is in that sort of intangible nuance that that tiny detail of the timing with which the line is delivered um you know the expression on the face the way that you're allowed to ad lib to make that line funny when it wasn't quite funny enough before it's things like that that make all the difference Mm, yeah that's why those Barclay card ads really fly when they do fly. Um, and yet there is so much built into the process of creating advertising that is often there effectively just squeezes all that out of it mm-hmm. so that the result is, is, is flat. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I remember, um, just as you're talking there, ones that I, one I thought worked when I was younger, like um, Peter Kay, when he was doing the John Smith bit, I thought, I thought he was very, like, it just felt like an extension of what he would do. Like, it felt like, it felt yeah. to me like he was writing the, all the ads and all the gags oh. and everything, and they just felt, and they were really funny. So I think Absolutely. you're right. When, when, yeah. when you, maybe when there's too many people controlling it, it loses its edge a bit. But on a question on, um, like, did did the small incremental changes protect you? Because how would the client of like, let's say like um, the idea where you all the cards you'd ever need and there was thousands of people in in Italy or wherever throwing cards in the air and, and ITV said you can't do that. So the the idea that you presented that won the pitch was was uh, for the budget you had was flawed. It was never going to work, right? So how many? If you'd have gone back to the client straight after you won the pitch and said, yeah, that we can't do that. It's never going to happen for reasons X, Y, and Z. So I don't think they would have been very happy with you. So was the kind of slow rolling them in, into incremental changes, was did, actually, did that actually, you took them on a journey with you, did that buy you more time? Because you could have been fired if you went back and said, you know, that ad is not going to work. I mean, realistic, realistically, you, you are probably right. I mean, I think it, it happened the way it happened. 
And if it had happened differently, we might have had a very, very different outcome. I mean, mm. in, in a way, you know, we, we were sort of, we were bumped into doing something that we might not ever have done otherwise, simply because we managed to get ourselves into this terrible time box. Mm. So from that point of view, you can look back on it and you can say, maybe it all worked out for the best. Mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, very likely, had we had we gone back to the, to the client uh, months earlier and said, we want to start again. Um, they may not have been pleased. A, they wouldn't have liked it. Um, B, we still wouldn't have known quite what to do. We might still have been too attached to some elements of what we were trying to do. Um, you know, it, it might never have turned out differently. These are sort yeah. of count, you know, counterfactual histories that one cannot one cannot do. I think the the I suppose that the lesson to take out of a story like that Barclay card story is not oh, if we had the benefit of hindsight, we could have all done it so much easier and, mm. and saved a lot of time and agony and everything. Um, I mean, that's so often true. But the real lesson is, in the real world, you don't have the benefit of hindsight. Mm. And so things are created and are discovered um, through a great deal of um, error, mm. uh, Agony, mm. argument, conflict, pain. Mm. Um, that, 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 that's the sort of that's just the truth. Thing. The, the question then is, how do you handle that conflict? Yeah, and that difficulty and those reverses. Um, can how can you work through them and stay in the room together and come out the other side? Yeah. And what so often happens, of course, is that collectively people don't do that. Um, the strain, the anxiety becomes so great mm. that people just want to get out of there. Mm. You get the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. um, either I'm going to blame it all on somebody else um, and sack the agency, or, you know, I can't bear this any longer. Um, I'm not going to have anything more to do with this. I'm going to walk away and let somebody else sort it out. We see those things happen mm. all the time in the development of advertising. And, of course, at that point, you know, you're not getting anywhere and it kind yeah. of just, hmm. you're stuck and, uh, and it's not helpful. But if you can hang on in there, and I mean, the, the positive side was, I mean, that, that Barclay Card client, they were a great bunch of people. Hmm. And one of the benefits of that pitch, pitch process, regardless of the content, was that we had spent quite a lot of time together building a relationship. So there was quite a high degree of trust quite a high degree of mutual confidence yeah, yeah. And, and indeed liking. And, um, you know, I think that stood us in good stead, that it was not simply a case of this has all gone wrong, you're rubbish, mm. we're going to fire you. Mm. It was like, well, this is not going quite the way we'd hoped, but, you know, we're all in this together, so, so mm. we better carry on and see where we get to. Yeah, and I, lo I love the... I love the the stories because I see how chaotic um, pitches and anything are when I'm doing them. And I'm reading about and I go, maybe maybe we're just doing it wrong. Maybe we're terrible at it. And then you kind of read your work and you go, this is just happens, you know, everywhere. <laughs> Despite yeah. what IPA and FE awards tell you, um, I want to talk about brand pyramids or brand keys or brand onions for a second because again, this idea that we we desperately try and over engineer um, 
a, a craft or, or a, a kind of a planning process or whatever um, and try and imbue things that were never meaning into things that were just overcomplicating things, right? So again, I, I laughed at this because I could resonate, like being in those sessions where you go in full of energy and then it's just like it's wordsmithing and you, you agree to anything just to get out of the room it's, and it's horrible. And then the bit, you end up presenting that fact to anyone who was in the room and they're like, is that it? That really? That's you spent two days locked away, twenty five people to come up with that. I mean, my dad could have come up with that. Um, so, why are we? And I know, I know, I know the answer. But you actually created some of these. You you were guilty, and for years you went around teaching people about about what whatever your AZ version of a brand onion or pyramid was. So, um, did you believe it at the time, or did you ever have a bit of doubt? And did you did you did you think you were trying to overcomplicate something? And what's your view on all these pyramids and keys and onions now? I know the answer, but for people who haven't read the book, what's your what's your view? Well, um, as I say, it's explained at length in the book, so I, I, I do, you know, would love people to to read those chapters. Um, I'd probably put it more articulately there than I will do now, but. Um, the, the, at the time, at the time I was working on that, when I was doing what, what we called our, our our version was called Brand Foundations at uh, at DDB, um, I did believe in it. Um, there were parts of it I believed in more than others, but I was I was not cynical about it then. But I was frustrated because it never quite got to the to the sort of outcome that we were kind of thinking mm. it should do. Um, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's my fault. Maybe, you know, I just, you know, old box of the horse in Animal Farm, I must work harder, you know, <laughs> it's not working because I'm not doing this quite well enough. So we'll try again and, and we'll keep plodding on. But I think there's also a case that there is a plus side to these things as well as a downside, as long as you sort of understand what the benefits are. And again, I, I, I make this point in the book that any set of questions about your brand are interesting and they are stimulating and they are can be energizing. So if you take your brand and you start, I mean, I think it's very legitimate and useful to ask questions about where did this brand come from hmm. and to look at the history of the brand and, and to tell the stories about the foundation of the brand um, it's useful to talk about what does this brand do. It's useful to talk about what makes this brand different. Um, I mean, all these things, just they throw up lots of thoughts, lots of ideas, um, and this is where the room becomes energized. Mm. The point where you start losing that energy is where you go, oh, well, we've had lots of great ideas, but now we have to write one down and put it in this box and mm. all agree on the exact words that we're using. That's <laughs> That's where everybody cuts. So, so as long as you you can you can make use of the process, as long as you're not looking for that kind of that kind of conclusion that will just reduce everything to a few words on a page and pin it down. Um, I think the answer is to cut to the chase that all brands succeed because of what they do. They don't succeed because of what they are. Hmm. What they are is is almost a meaningless question, but that's the way people think. This notion of the the brand essence has hmm. become so entrenched that people think all we have to do is define exactly what our brand is, and then everything else will automatically follow. 
They've got it the wrong way around. Uh, actually, the only thing that matters, the only thing that your public will ever see, the only thing that will ever make a difference is what the brand does. Mm. You know, what design will it use? What products are you sticking the name on? You know, how does it promote itself? How does it advertise itself? How does it get talked about in the media? Um, you know, it's what it does. And, and, and I take Coke as the example in Why Does the Peddler Sing? But you could take any brand. And if you look at Nike or Apple, they're equally good, very, very high profile examples. Um, or, or Tesla nowadays. Mm. You know? so th these brands, it's very hard to explain them in terms of they succeed because they have an essence. You can sometimes look at them and say, well, it looks, to, there's certainly a certain coherence or a consistency about that brand. I mean, we kind of know what Nike stands for, mm. but when we all try and write that down in a few words, we'll all write down 101 different versions of what it stands for. We all have a sense, though, of it being co consistent and coherent. Um, and that's partly because it's all tied together by. You know, it, it is the same brand, it uses the same logo, it uses the same distinctive assets. But ultimately, it succeeds because of what it does. You know, it does a lot of interesting stuff. Hmm. Um, and it does a huge amount of stuff. And over over the 40 years of its existence, it's done a, a, an unbelievable amount of stuff. You know, you, no one can get their whole head around it. And yet, the outcome of that is how we now perceive hmm. Nike. But to say that, you know, Nike succeeded because, uh, you know, in the in the beginning, you mm. know, Phil said Nike is, you know, empowering athletes or whatever yeah. it is. And then everything followed from that. I mean, you only have to read Shoe Dog yeah. and you realize that's, that's complete and utter nonsense. I mean, that is now a kind of sense that you can retrospectively fit to yeah, it. Yeah. And I think to be fair to Nike you can fit it in a way that that becomes actually of some usefulness to them because it will it's a useful concept because it will generate ideas mm. if you say okay if we're empowering athletes what would this suggest we might do next year mm -hmm. and if it gives you three more good ideas for exciting things to do then it's served a purpose mm -hmm. if you then say well actually we really want to do this because it sounds great but it doesn't fit our brand essence then it's arguably it's mm. going to get right in the way because you're not going to do something really interesting. And if you look at the history of all those brands, you know, the point is that they, they don't just do one thing consistently. They do loads of mm. things. Yeah. They do loads of things. And some of them stick and, and most of them, to be honest, don't. But it doesn't matter because they're doing enough to move forward. And, and that's the whole mindset, which, you know, I think entertainers and celebrities – think naturally in those terms because they have that continual energy, that continual responsiveness, that continual sense of whatever happens, I can find a way of using this to my advantage. Mm. They do not go, oh, that's not on brand, so I'm not going to do it. Mm. Um, you know, very often what they do that keeps them alive and exciting is they do sometimes the complete opposite of what they were doing just now. You know, if you're Miley Cyrus and you're known as a squeaky clean child star, you get mm. to the age of 19 or whatever, you think, oh, I'm going to be as raunchy mm. as possible and start sticking my bottom out. Um, then everybody will argue about it like mad. It's the Fiji mermaid all over again. Mm. And, uh, you know, you've got another five years of fame on the strength of that.
So um, it's what you do, not what you are. That's 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 the takeaway. Yeah, and 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 you've so there's you know we think about brands. It's about single-minded purpose and, and ruthless focus on that. But then you make a good point about how you, to you novelty works quite well so the unexpected and 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 the and whether that's even the way you talk about in the book whether it's kind of clever use of of grammar incorrect grammar that that you know it's it's familiar to us but it's new to us as novelty so yeah because that seems to work quite well or or i know even honey monster like this the, the construct that that ad was really well explained so because it isn't about like byron sharp might say it's about ruthless focus and consistency and distinctiveness um but you, you need to vary from that path from time to time to, to get people to pay attention to you. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, that, that that's, yes, a certain degree of consistency is, is, is necessary. But realistically, I think the consistency is largely, if not entirely, taken care of by paying attention to your distinctive assets. I mean, which, which is a... a Ehrenberg Bass phrase, which I found very useful. But, you know, it's those sort of tangible things. It's the logo, it's the colours, it's the character, it's, it's aspects of the design, you know, it, it, it's, it's whatever, it's, it's, it's the slogan, whatever it might be. If you use those things consistently enough and you protect them enough, then you can do, mm. you can do a whole lot of different stuff and keep it interesting. Um, you know, of course, there's no one size fits all. Some brands are more obviously consistent than others, like some celebrities are more obviously mm. consistent than others. Um, you know, I mean, you, you look at someone like uh, sort of David Bowie throughout his career, continually reinventing himself, um, turning himself into new characters, new personae, and, and, and very often, you know... Mm apparently very inconsistent with what had gone before and yeah. yet is what adds up to our impression and now with hindsight it probably seems much less shocking than it did at the time you know when he would kind of go from wearing a dress to being the thin white tube but you know one can now see that as mm. here is somebody playing a whole lot of different characters mm. but at the time it just felt like oh my god what's he doing next but that that was what kept kept him exciting um other people do that less you know you look at frank sinatra or george clooney or someone there's much more consistency throughout their career and yet you know in in their different ways they are continuing to do things mm. that are different mm. um you know frank sinatra was a great singer but he didn't just sing mm. he actually turned out to be a very fine actor and he would do some quite gritty roles you know playing Playing soldiers and things in the in, mm. in the movies, um, and uh, and then he would be a comedian as well with the Rat Pack. Yeah. So you know, I, I, as I say in the book, that I think there's there's so much that brands can learn, and on the whole, this is not what's talked about in the mm. discourse of brands, but what brands can learn by looking at celebrities, because you say, well, celebrities. You know that yes, there is a consistency, and of course it helps by if you're a celebrity, you tend to have the same face mm -hmm. <laughs> pretty much yeah. um, throughout your life. But you can change just about everything else. Um, yeah, you mentioned Beckham. You mentioned Beckham in the book. That's the that you get as a, as a celebrity is you do something different. You know, mm. I mean, actors and uh, 
uh, you know, film stars, for example, continually doing different things. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> no, you're absolutely right. Um, and we touched on this earlier on. There's another common thread that runs across the books in different guises, um, and that is this idea, and, and it comes up quite a lot about the the industry um, looking down its nose at things that it might deem beneath them, like juvenile or you know, use of characters or things that we know that have worked quite well. Um, so, mm. at, and you get into this in a in a, a bit more detail in, in Peddler. So, and I think the way you put it was, just get my you, you said that the, the term creative was far too often conflated with coolness to the point where agencies some not not everybody but some of the agencies lost sight of the fact they were supposed of what they were supposed to do which is creating fame for for brands ultimately um and how they do that whether it was it was seen as you know discrediting other you know people who didn't didn't deem to be of their <laughs> creative standards or whatever or look or or so what, what is that something that you think has been um how big a problem was that in the agencies that that we we you know this coolness is this constantly striving for what we deem to be I don't, I don't know worshiping of creativity in its in all its guises like originality even if you will how big a problem was that um I think it sort of gradually crept into being a problem um from about the 90s onwards I think um the focus I mean if you go back to the 70s it was, I think there was a lot of work that was being done that managed to be at the same time genuinely popular, mm. but also was sort of very well crafted and therefore won creative awards. Mm -hmm. um, you look at ads from, from that period, like the sort of, um, you know, the Hovis ad or the Tic Tac Detective or whatever it was, or the Smash Martians from those periods. Um, they were sort of clever enough for the industry to sort of admire them as, you know, bits of, bits of craft. And therefore, you know, and, and they were beautifully done with things like animation and mm -hmm. music and so forth, film direction. Those kind of craft skills would win awards. And yet the, the basic product was an ad which was genuinely popular. Um, now... At the same time, there were an awful lot of ads that were genuinely popular and successful in that era that would never have won creative awards. Mm. You know, I mean, there was a, a London agency called Alan Brady and Marsh. It was run by a guy called Peter Marsh, whose background was actually in sort of show business. And he himself was a great showman. I mean, mm -hmm. he wore white suits and he drove around in a Rolls Royce, you know, and he did the whole sort of, you know, he was a performer himself. A Barnum-type character. And, 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 uh, agencies like us, BMP and CDP, we really looked down our noses at ABM. You know, it was like, this is vulgar stuff. Yeah. But they were hugely successful, and they did a whole lot of campaigns that were probably as famous as ours, like, you know, the wonder of Woolies and this is the age of the train and stuff like that. They did great slogans. They they used celebrities. Um and, and, and indeed, you know, you can look back on those campaigns now and you can say, those are actually great campaigns. Mm. The same way that we look back on ABBA songs now and say, oh, what masterpieces of the songwriter's art. Mm -hmm. I mean, you forget now that back in the 80s, people thought ABBA was bubblegum pop mm. and uh, nobody yeah. took it seriously. 
they all wanted to go and listen to their Pink Floyd and Yes records and everything. Um, so time time sometimes shifts the way. But but there is this sort of pecking order in advertising of, you know, what's cool and what's not cool. And as I say, that was where it was in the 70s. I think it, it became more and more polarised as time went on uh, from about the 90s onwards. I'm not quite sure why, but from the, from about 30 years ago, I would say, um, there was a real sort of gap between the things that won awards became more and more talking to the advertising business itself mm. and less and less connected with the campaigns that were really successful. Um, and that's when I think the idea, I mean, this exacerbated the real problem that things like things like jingles, mm-hmm. things like slogans even. Characters. And then things like characters all progressively became, oh, these just yeah. look like ads, so we don't want to do them. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, you know, gradually they, they, they all became, oh, we mustn't do that because that's that's not cool. It, it, it looks too much like an advert. Um, where it's got to now is I, I just find so many of the ads I see on the television rather depressing because despite the fact that they're doing their best to avoid so many of those mm. so-called cliches, they all do look terribly like each other mm. because they're using the same sort of backing tracks they're using the same sort of directors. They're using the same sort of art direction. They're using the same sort of casting. They're using the same sort of camera tricks, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and they're trying to be desperately cool. And yet they they, they all look very samey to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, fair point. You know, I, I may not be entirely fair in every case, but I think that's that's where we've lost some of it. Yeah, and um, I didn't I didn't notice when you, you like you 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 didn't use the word creativity um in the book up until you deliberately left it out so uh, and one of the one of the problems that you have with the word like a lot of the great creative campaigns that we see whether you know as you as you rightly point out they it's kind of a, a destructive force and um, whether it's kind of apple's rebellion against um microsoft or, and and there's a a macho-ness and a like i, I don't know whether it's yeah, well, it's an unintended consequence of that one. You, you, and, and that's your—you had a problem with the word creativity, or the culture of creativity, or the culture that maybe the agencies. Maybe it's not the word itself. It's it's the culture which has been fostered, and and creative agencies look and act the way they are today because they're quite um, unrepresentative society. They're very male and macho, and sometimes juvenile. And uh, so, can you just expand on that a little bit, and just to give me some of your your thinking about because because it was really. I mean, it's a it's a long bit in the book. Um, so we won't do it justice here, but just to tell me how that how that has kind of evolved over time and why creative agencies are now ultimately still male dominated spaces, departments, I should say. Yeah, I mean that may be changing a bit, but I think the culture the culture is still there. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I, I don't like the word creativity because I mean I don't I don't like words that are. I don't know what they mean, or they seem to mean many different things to different people, because I find them unhelpful um, and, and, and actually dangerous. And I, I'd, I'd thought for a long time that creativity is is that kind of a word. And I mean, it is a word that, again, its its origins are very much associated with Bill Bernbach, 
and the DDB of the sort of early early days when they were doing you know interesting stuff. But um, you know, people like David Ogilvy and Ross Reeves mm-hmm. were, were, were thoroughly sceptical of it. Um, Ogilvy called it a highfalutin word for the work I have to do by next Tuesday. <laughs> Russell Reeves challenged it and said, do you think this means originality? Because there's no point in being original. Um, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing original. And they're making very, very good points. But my, my, my problem with creativity was it can mean so many different things to different people, and it had become fetishized. Yes, yeah. I mean, I worked for DDB. Uh, of course, BMP merged with DDB in about 1990, 89 and 90. And from that point on, I mean, it was a very delightful, rewarding time I spent for the following 15, 16 years working for the merged agency. And, um, you know, I got on terribly well with someone like the, you know, Keith Reinhardt, the uh, chairman and CEO of DDB, a lovely guy who I, I was very proud to work for uh, and had a great deal of respect for. But... Um, it gradually dawned on me that the word creativity had got this sort of strange privileged status within the agency. Mm. The one thing you weren't allowed to criticize. Um, I mean, I remember Keith saying to us once, I want you to have a really radical look at what this agency is all about. And he says, there, there, there are no limits. You can challenge everything, challenge anything, he says. <laughs> And then a moment's pause. But well, except except creativity, right. of course. Right. And, and I mean, I, I thought at the time, you know, that's it. Whenever you hear that, you know, you can change anything but this. Mm. In a way, that's pointing to that's where the problem is. Mm, true. <laughs> and it was this obsession with creativity. Now, creativity it has to mean something in practical terms if you pay that much attention to it. Mm-hmm. You can't just say we're doing creativity. What you start saying, well, what does that mean? And actually, the trouble is, in in practical terms, in advertising agency world, it only really means one thing, which is winning awards. Mm, yeah, so that becomes yeah. an end in itself. And as the rewards become less and less connected with what is popular or what is effective. Indeed, they actually become almost diametrically opposed in many ways to what is popular and what is effective, simply mm. because what is popular, almost by definition, is not what is cool, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. And yeah. this was a great irony because, of course, Keith came from uh, Needham, Harper and Steers, the great Chicago agency, who were much more popular in the work they did mm. and and in many ways much more effective in the work they did than than ddb coming out of new york an agency that for for many years had hopelessly lost its way and was already pursuing creative awards rather than producing campaigns that um mm. actually achieved anything but even keith i think was sort of starry-eyed about this this legacy of bill bernbach and would not criticize it and uh, for, for for various reasons you know just wanted to maintain this this cult of creativity um so that's where i think creativity became not just a sort of vaguely unhelpful word but became 
a positively dangerous word. And that's why, as I say, I didn't really want to use it hmm. uh, in, in the book. And, and as I say, whenever I was tempted to use it, um, I would stop and think, what do I really mean hmm. here? And I, I could generally find a, yeah, a better yeah, word. Yeah, wasn't even, even noticed. I, I didn't even I notice. Meant, if I meant aesthetics. If I meant originality, I'd say originality. Yeah. If I meant entertaining, I'd say entertaining. You know, mm. if I meant it wins awards, I'd say it wins awards. Um, all of these things are kind of muddled up together in the use of creativity. I then did, decided I'd let it in for entirely pragmatic reasons that it's the word that everybody is using. Mm -hmm. And if I can stick it on the front cover, it might sell a few more books. <laughs> yeah. And actually... If the word's not going to go away, which I don't think it will, then the best thing we can do is at least try and say, what do we want this word to mean? Mm. And that's where I come out at the end of why does the peddler sing? I think if we're going to use this word, mm -hmm. let's agree on what it ought to mean. Exactly. And I think it should mean not what is going to win creative awards, but what kind of work is going to be popular and famous. Mm. Um and that, in most cases, is going to have some elements of the world of popular culture and entertainment involved with it, probably as well. Mm. So, you know, if if we can if we can focus on that, we may get back on track. Mm. Uh, I, won't, I won't keep you too much longer. Just a, a couple more quick questions. Um, like. It, I, I we've talked about it at, at pains for a while now. It suited the the ad industry, the the the, prof, the, the ad industry professionals to, to kind of distance themselves from this idea of advertising working in a kind of hidden persuasion kind of way, right? We didn't want anything to do with that. And because mm -hmm. it, the, the, I think it's the way you put it in the book is the industry was was suffering a, a crisis of self-image. And it seems to me at the moment. Um, the industry is having a bit of a, a, a crisis again today. Do you think the industry is in a bit of crisis at the moment? And is that why you mentioned it earlier on? Is that why we're we're not involved in storytelling? We're not involved in what is looking down our nose at jingles or out of fashion? And we're we're we're, we're kind of more in persuasiveness and and very rational presenting facts to people and as opposed to giving people the intelligence to figure stuff out themselves. Is is this you know we're we're in the business of presenting reasons to buy and there's not a lot of well, even to use the word creativity or, or difference between campaigns, is it an industry that's in a bit of self-crisis at the moment? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not so close to ad agencies as I used to be. Um, so I, I may not be entirely accurate, but um, my feeling is that, yeah, I would say they are. And um, I think you've got to ask yourself a number of questions. I mean, the, the, the first fact is, is there a lot of money still in advertising? Well, yes, there is, probably more than there's ever been. I mean, that's why it's still of interest to to people like Martin Sorrell and, you mm. know, WPP and Omnicom, that, that there is vast, vast amounts of money being spent on advertising in, in various different media today. So there's a demand there from the clients. There's the money there. That proves it, um, and that is, you know, the media are there to 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 to, to deliver it. Um, but look at it from the point of view of the agencies. Are the ad agencies making money? I'm not sure they are very much. Um, are they nice places to work? Are people there having fun? My impression is that people in ad agencies 
are all worked ragged mm. uh, even more than they used to be. And it was, you know, that was always been a thing that was said about ad agencies, but it seems to me that's probably now worse than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Are they having fun? I don't mm. believe on the whole that they are, certainly not nearly as much as we were 40 years ago. No. Um, and I think that's a, that's a bad thing. Are they producing product that is effective? I think there's some evidence that that is less true than it used to be. And mm. it seems to me that's likely to be true. Are they producing work that is enjoyed by the general public? I don't think they are. Uh, again, less so than they yes, used so, to. Yeah. Um, I think they're producing a lot of work which is irritating the general public and and not effective. Um, and I think that also matters because advertising is now so easy to avoid. You know, mm. uh, there, are, there are many ways of not having to watch ads at all if you don't want to, um, often by simply paying for the privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, on that basis, the only kind of advertising that's going to be effective is advertising that people want to watch. Mm. And if there's less less of that about. So um, do advertising agencies have more respect from their clients than they used to? I suspect not. Yeah. And again, probably, probably less. Uh, I think whichever way you look at it, um, I think the problem with ad agencies, and I, I'm generalizing, of course, you will find exceptions, of course, yeah. particularly accounts where there are good relationships, there's good work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the problem with ad agencies is, I think in so many ways, at a very fundamental level, their culture is still rooted in how they used to be 50 or 60 years ago, um, when we had the 15% commission system, mm. when me creative were all handled by the same agency uh that world has changed beyond recognition we've had the media side has left the creative side so they're now handled separately um there's a whole lot of other stuff going on that simply didn't exist on the you know with digital advertising of all sorts and all the intermediaries who are raking off money for doing God knows what on that front. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have a 15% commission system mm. or anything. So, you know, agencies are only remunerated on the basis of whatever fees mm-hmm. they can negotiate from their clients. They're still rubbish at negotiating by and large. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they get away with it by, selling 200% of their billable hours, and uh, that means somebody's getting screwed somewhere along the line. All these, I think, are the problems facing agencies today. And, of course, it's it's the old boiled frog thing. They've all just got gradually, gradually worse, Mm. so people are putting up with it. Um, And it just about sort of continues to hang together. Uh, And I've been waiting for the last 30 years for sort of the agency model to somehow radically reinvent itself, but so far it hasn't done. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm not holding my breath waiting for that to happen. No, but it seems to me that everything is in a continual state of stress and strain, which is no longer particularly rewarding 
for anybody who's involved in it. Mm. And, and therefore, I would, but don't ask me what the answer is. Mm. No, <laughs> uh, it's a fair point. I have to hand that over to somebody who actually runs an advertising agency to, mm. to see what they can do. But yeah. uh, I, I think uh, you've got to start by admitting there's a problem. Mm. I, 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 know I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with anything you said there. Um, Peter, I, I was talking to Peter Field, hasn't got out yet. I was talking to Peter Field what was last week, I think it was last Tuesday. And and someone you mentioned in, in your work, um, to, uh, in the book you talk about the, the fact that in his evidence, the creative multiplier has almost disappeared. So does that mean that creative is no longer valuable anymore as it accounts for less um it has its contribution is less so so creativity in its pure sense is not as valuable as it used to be or is it more the case that the way we measure creativity in terms of awards is 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 not measuring the right thing it's me, it's not it's measuring its its pure craft and creativity as opposed to its impact on clients results what so why is the creative multiplier almost disappeared now in your view um I mean, I, I have great respect for Peter as a brilliant guy and Les, who he often works with. And um, but you know, with with with, with the greatest respect, some some of those analyses are they're very ingenious and and indicative, but I take them with a slight pinch of salt because you know you are having to measure things that you've got data for, mm-hmm. um, and those aren't always. I suppose that the whole story. So I'm, I'm, I have a, I have a slight sort of hesitation about buying it. But I think one of the things that he's shown is that even when you do have a successful ad, and I think there are less ads now that are really powerful. That the other big problem is that the money is not being spent behind the ads, mm. and that's the other thing. You know, there's this. I think this is part of Peter's point actually, which is a very good one. Is that um, you know, it's not enough to have have a well-made ad. Mm-hmm. If you have a well-made ad, you should. It's not an excuse to spend less. Yeah. It's a reason to spend more. Mm-hmm. Uh, not enough people are doing that. Um, not enough people are are. You know, I mean, that that early principle of advertising that it's about mass audiences. It's about making yourself famous. Um, insofar as you are going to pay for media, mm. pay for a lot of media. You know, you need to you need to to, to get money behind it. Um, I'm not sure that that's being done so much anymore. Mm, but yeah. um, I, I think there's also, I mean, it, it, why is advertising less effective? I think it comes back to so many of the things we've talked about. It's lack of wanting to be popular. Mm. It's using. It's not using research of a kind that will help you to be popular. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's also, it's about having a culture which does not enable people to produce work that is genuinely popular and entertaining. I mean, if ad agencies could reinvent themselves so that they felt more like part of the world of entertainment. Right. Which, to some extent, back in the 70s and 80s, I think we did. Mm. Um, then that might help. Mm. Mm. Yeah, fair point. Own 
two more questions and then I promise I'll let you go. Um, it's easy to sit here and I do it all the time, talk about what's wrong with advertising and, and generally it's not as, as good as it used to be. Is there anything you've seen, any work, not not from the agency, it doesn't matter about the agency, any, any campaigns that you've seen in recent enough times that you thought was quite good or any exceptions, anything you've seen says, that's really clever, I like that or it's great or anything at all that you liked? It's it's a difficult one, um, and I mean my answers even will probably not be not be very up to date. Um, you know, I mean, I've, the Specsavers campaign it seems mm. to me has been very successful and has been a good example of how you can be entertaining, mm. consistent, mm. Uh, and it exemplifies, you know. Simple things that advertising does yeah. keeps your name for the public, makes people like you, yeah. um, and uh, you know keeps it fresh. Um, I used to say the meerkats for compare the market. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, I think they lost their way quite a while ago. They're simply not funny enough. They're not charming enough. Um, they're too much driven by promotions. Yeah. How well that business is doing, I have no idea. I mean, if it's all going well, then, you know, it's it's hardly for me to, to knock it. But, the, I mean, those are not new campaigns. Mm. Uh, you know, they've both been around for 10 years or, yeah, yeah. or more, uh, probably a lot more, actually, in the case of the Meerkats. But that's also part of the credit. I mean, the, the, other, the other besetting error, of course, is, is the idea that, um, you know, people – won't create a campaign that will run for more than a year, mm. uh, continually changing agencies, changing campaigns. Mm, um, I mean, I had a look a, a while ago at the history of um, the Premier Inns campaign in the UK, where they, they used Lenny Henry. Yeah, yeah I remember, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was an interesting campaign because, um, I mean, I think it twice won um, Turkey of the Week in campaign when it started. Uh-huh. And, and yet Lenny Henry was probably the only thing they did that really worked. And it, it, it wasn't brilliant to start with, but it kind of hit its stride after about two years. Mm. And they did a campaign with the sort of, I remember the one with all the beds on the beach, Lenny Henry waking up from the bed on the beach. I mean, it's not an ad that's ever going to win creative awards. No. But it was a well-crafted ad, and it was a very successful ad. Mm. Um and everybody remembered it. They knew what it was for. They knew what it was about. They liked Lenny Henry. They create. They turned him into a distinctive asset. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing was what happened within a year of that. A uh, new marketing director came in, <laughs> um, predictably fired the agency, put it out to pitch, wasted a year pitching, appointed a new agency, Lucky Generals. They did a campaign which was, I thought, convoluted and pretentious. And after another couple of years, they got fired mm. and it went somewhere else. And they're now doing some very dull advertising, which has Lenny Henry doing a voiceover. You know, it, it's just sort of none of it's none of it's award winning stuff. Um, some of it was very effective stuff. Mm. And that's all that really matters. But it's consistently underperformed mm. simply because it has not focused on what mattered and, and it's been indecisive and it's chopped and changed. And that's by no means the worst of the advertising mm. that's around mm. 
today, I would say. But that's that's a sort of example of, yeah. you know, the reality of where it's at. Um, mm. Something that could be good, but could be much better mm. than it is. Yeah, true, true. Um, right, last question. You, you're, you, you had a great career and you're a great writer and a, a successful writer. What, if you could go back in time now and just meet your younger you, just embarking on your career in advertising, what advice, what, what, what do you know or what did you learn later in life that you wish you knew earlier in your career? What advice would you give yourself or give to anybody who's kind of, you know, thinking, entering the industry? There's a lot of students listen to this and marketing people as well as clients, but a lot of students, so people young in their career listen to this podcast. So what advice would you give your younger self? Goodness me. Um, There's one to end with. There's I'm a question sure. to end to end off with. Eh? You weren't expecting that. It, it, it's a it's a difficult one because, I mean, I'm honestly very pleased with the way it all worked out. I mean, I wouldn't want to give myself any advice that that changed mm. the way it went. I mean, if I could tell my tell my younger self everything I think I know now, mm. it might not have helped me because people would just have thought I was bonkers, probably. <laughs> Um, I mean, possibly I would say uh, take more risks, start your own agency. You might make some real money. Right. But then that could easily have gone horribly wrong, and I didn't do too badly after all. So, uh, yeah. as I say, I'm contented with the way it all worked out. What I'd say to young people today, I don't know. I mean, I've got a son, a son who works in advertising, and he's doing really very well at it. But I don't think he's having as much fun as I used to. No, it's definitely not. But even even in the, the the twenty odd years I've been in the industry, it's it's. I mean, it's 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 definitely more professional. It has become much more. You know, someone was saying the other day, you know, standard operating procedures, and there's no there's no procedures at all. You can't have standard. You haven't kind of best in class if you don't have any operating procedures at all. So it was a terribly dysfunctional and chaotic. And I mean, we've just been in a process to try and look at how we pitch because it's just chaos as you well know and just and and I don't know we've got a lot of effort put into this and I just think pitches are somewhat chaotic you, it's just the way it yeah. is and it's just you know it's stressful and you're against a clock and you and uh, but one of the one of the things which I which I really uh, something I, I want to learn I took from your book is that idea of holding on to the the Barclay um pitch winning idea too long I've been there myself you know what's up was that working and just to and you I think you know it's you just know it's not working and everybody is afraid to call it um and you just end up painfully, you know, having to change it down the road. So yeah. I do love that idea of trying to just say, This is not working. Um not easy to do when you're committed to something and you really think you can make it work, but it just doesn't. Well, Paul, listen, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um and yeah, I I, I knew I I'd cut a lot of questions out, but I knew I was going to be here a long time because it's just it, the, 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 I really enjoyed the books and I enjoy a lot of the the books that I've that I've read and the guests I've had on. But I, I that was one that I really just the honesty and, and oh, it just thanks, resonated thanks so, so much. much. It's good to know. And can I, can I just mention um, on the call to action that the books are available as audio books yes. and of course as Kindles and so forth. If I, people, I, I, if, if people aren't fed up with the sound of my voice, you can hear me reading them. Yes, I the have. Audio. I've done because I kind of cheated. I flipped, I flipped between the actual Kindle version where I read it and then the, the audio book as well. 
And it's amazing because it picks uh-huh. up it picks up whatever page I was on the Kindle and I put it down and I listen to audio later on. It just picks it straight back from there. So it's incredible. But they are on genuinely they're brilliant books. It's one it's wonderful wonderful writing and I would urge anybody um, if you haven't read them, check them out and read them. So um yeah, and I'll put them in the article as well just to reference them. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot. So that's it. That's all she wrote. We've gone over time again. Um, I genuinely, Paul, very appreciative of you taking the time today. So big thank you to you for that. Um, thanks to Kira in marketing and thanks to Andrea in sound. And thank you, as always, to our wonderful partners at Irish Times Media Solutions who help make all of this possible. And thanks to you for listening. If you liked that episode, why not listen back to our ever-growing, evergreen back catalogue. You will find them by simply typing Irish Times inside marketing into your search engine of choice. So yes, if you don't know, now you know. Advertising is overcomplicating things at times. Um, Genuinely read up on Paul's books. If you haven't done so yet, read them. They are a great read. So until next time, thank you for listening. The Inside Marketing Podcast brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. 